This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these are opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. All right, hello there. Uh, Welcome back to Voices in Recovery. Um, today, my guest and I are going to be speaking about recovery from schizophrenia and living with schizophrenia. I'm sure a lot of different things are going to come out, uh, and I am just going to thank you so much for coming, and uh, please take it away. Tell us your story. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for having me here. Uh, this is Very not welcome. an easy topic for me to share about. This is a highly stigmatized mental illness. Mm-hmm. As soon as people hear the diagnosis of schizophrenia, it changes their opinion of someone, mm-hmm. whether it changes them to discrediting anything that they believed was uh, reputable about that person, or it gives them more empathy about how hard someone with schizophrenia has to work mm-hmm. to navigate in this world, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I'll, just, I'll start off with a couple, like, standard like information details about schizophrenia one in a hundred people have this mental illness Mm -hmm. so it's not that rare Mm -hmm. however what most people see is schizophrenia is not how it manifests in everyone okay so usually when you say and, and I'll also mention that instead of saying you're a schizophrenic I'm going to encourage people to say, you have schizophrenia. Okay. Right? That makes sense. And, and the reason is, is you don't tell people who have cancer that they are a cancer. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't tell people who have diabetes, <clears throat> you are diabetes. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, it's a part of the person. It, is, it does not define who they are in an entirety. Um, and that single thing about language and saying, you know, a person with schizophrenia in contrast to a schizophrenic Mm -hmm. is something that can change the stigma in in the world Mm -hmm. about this mental illness right off the bat yeah so i mean first we'll start off by saying like when people think of someone with schizophrenia most people have that image of usually a man on the street Mm -hmm. who is talking to themselves who has weird physical facial tics Mm -hmm. right um, and so they're, they're, you know, having a conversation with someone you can't see 
and they might be pulling at their hair or you know holding their hand next to their face and twitching their Mm -hmm. finger or something like this right so what you're seeing there uh, is the extreme worst case of how this disease manifests Mm -hmm. and those physical twit ticks are actually a side effect of the original medications that were used to mm. treat schizophrenia. So the the ticks aren't natural until the medication kind of thing. Yeah. So, so if you're if a person was to just kind of try to equate schizophrenia with the nervous the tick, right? Mm-hmm. The, the visible thing that's usually a sign that's so that's a sign that they're being treated then that's a sign that they were on the last generation of antipsychotic medication yeah do those ticks last forever they can okay so they can be permanent then once the medication stops right and so like that's last generation of of antipsychotic um there's a lot of medication that's been developed since then which doesn't cause those ticks Mm -hmm. um but i was on a medication in my early diagnosis that was causing me to press my tongue to the inside bottom of my lip, mm. right? Compulsively, mm-hmm. right? And it, it, it looked weird, like, what are you doing with your face, mm-hmm. right? And I went to my doctor and I mentioned this and they took me off the medication right away because what happens is if you're on the medication for too long, it does impact your neural pathways in mm-hmm. your brain and it does become a permanent physical mm-hmm. tick. Um, you know, there, there's something called co-occurrent disorders, mm-hmm. co-occurrent disorders. So this means like schizophrenia can exist in the same person that has OCD. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, ticks can be related to OCD. Yeah. Right. Okay. So they're two different things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I guess I should characterize like what is a mental health disability of, or what is mental health identifiers of schizophrenia. So schizophrenia is given to people who have uh, either visual, auditory, or f- physical hallucinations, delusions, an altered perception of reality, which is either causing um, what's called positive or negative effects, mm-hmm. right? So a positive effect is m- something like reacting to a voice you hear. Mm-hmm. Right, whether you get emotional about it, or um, uh, it causes you to talk a lot. There's something called uh, word salad, mm-hmm. right? So this is a positive effect where somebody will be stimulated by their altered reality or their hallucination, mm-hmm. and they'll start talking, and it'll just sound like word salad. It'll mm-hmm. be like. Applesauce, pigs, ducks, and you left me at the party, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just, it sounds really random and doesn't make sense, right? And it's just, imagine those neurons misfiring in the brain, connecting to a reality that you're absent from, Mm -hmm. um, you being the observer. And they are, you know, highly stimulating, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the negative effects of schizophrenia are like the catatonic states, Mm right? So, so like flat emotion, um, not reacting to really traumatic Mm -hmm. situations. 
um, or, or really like a car crash, yeah. right? A car crash happens and you like don't react. Does it manifest physically too, that non-reaction? Mm-hmm. And so basically like straight faced and all kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Um, so a person with schizophrenia, the average person will start to experience symptoms around like age 18 to 30. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is average onset. There's also childhood onset and late onset. Yeah. Um, and what this means, onset, means that they have a, psychiat- a psychiatric crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay, they have a delusion which impedes their regular day-to-day life. Okay, okay. so this doesn't mean that it's a violent event. Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean that it's a suicide attempt, mm-hmm. but it could. It could mean that they start hearing the radio talk to them mm-hmm. or the TV talk to them, right? Um, we'll get into what my experience was in yeah. a bit, but I'm just trying to give people like some general information before we delve into mm-hmm. my story, right? Yeah. So they'll have this psychiatric event that will get them into a doctor's office or a medical mm-hmm. office. Um, if they're lucky, they already know their family history, which has tracers of schizophrenia, so they're anticipating this, yeah. but that isn't always the case. Mm-hmm. And they will go into the doctor, get the diagnosis, start on antipsychotic medication and um, psychiatric treatment, and they may never have another event again. Mm-hmm. Some people might have um, symptoms which are like mild symptoms mm-hmm. where they will hear things every once in a while particularly when they have high stress in their life mm-hmm. um, but for other people it will be perpetually worse over time um, you know they will have regular onset of clinical issues mm-hmm. which continue to get worse and worse over the, the their lives Right. Um, and does that happen sometimes when people are medicated? It can still get worse and worse and worse and tre- if they're treated? Yes, but. But not as common? Not as common. Okay. Right. Like, um, my understanding, what was explained to me is once you have had that neurological break, mm-hmm. right, that, well, I shouldn't call it a neurological break, that the breakdown. How right? about a neurological change? Change, yeah, yeah shift yeah. is a better way to look at it. Um, the neural pathways in your brain will reroute mm-hmm. okay if you're medicated it kind of acts like a roadblock okay yeah. so instead of your brain constantly misfiring and going off on its schizophrenic tangents it's going to stop and go into a more natural rhythm mm-hmm. let's say okay however medications don't work the same for everybody mm-hmm. Um, one of the classic side effects, one of the classic issues with um, schizophrenic people and medication is medication compliance is low, mm-hmm. right? You start to feel better, you start to stop having symptoms, so you don't want to take the medication. You mm-hmm. want to be quote unquote normal, right? Honestly, I see that as one of the largest barriers. It's huge. Right? Like yeah. Just not, not the barrier in the sense of getting the help initially, but that barrier ongoing mm-hmm. right that is a considerable barrier because um in my experience it absolutely seems legit not to take it mm-hmm. right like 
from what I've experienced with other people. Well, and I'll tell you something from an insider's point of view. Mm -hmm. It's a hell of a lot more interesting life when you don't <laughs> take the medication, right? Yeah, fair because, enough. Because the things that you experience, that I've experienced, are a hell of a lot more interesting than actual day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Right? So we play yeah. video games, we watch movies, we wa read fantasy books to entertain ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have schizophrenia, it's going on when you forget to take your medication for a week, you right? Got your entertainment. You get to, yeah, you get to live that fantasy book, mm -hmm. right? Which is kind of interesting. Interesting and dangerous. I could see it how is. I could see why the but I could see why the the draw to not take it, right? Because it is interesting enough mm -hmm. um, to c be compelling, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah to make exactly. your days interesting, I guess. Yeah. And and hmm. um, you know, particularly if there's any type of delusion attached to the um, hallucinations you have, mm -hmm. you know, the draw might be even more, you know, like there are some people who experience um, delusions that say that the medication is poisonous mm -hmm. or that you, uh, for myself, my delusion is that I am in contact with altered, no, sorry, with other layers of universes, mm -hmm. right, with altered states of reality from this one. Right, so quantum physics, multiverse, and I'm just actually in touch with the multiverse. Mm -hmm. Well, that's way cooler than, oh, you have a highly stigmatized mental illness. Yeah, no doubt. Right, so why yeah. would I want to take the medication yeah. um, when I can be like, there was an old movie or TV show back in the 90s called Sliders, mm -hmm. right? And they would travel from multiverse to multiverse, mm. right? And that's kind of what it feels like sometimes for me. Yeah that's way more fun than, yeah. oh, you have to take your medication every day <laughs> and have the side effects of that medication, mm -hmm. right? Which are not pleasant either. Yeah, and I hope we'll talk about that too. That's yeah, we'll get in there. But um, yeah, so I mean, like for most, going back to what it is like, some people will have one event in their life that may or may not get them hospitalized mm -hmm. and then never return. Other people, it will be a progressive journey into f further and further reaches of disconnection from this reality mm -hmm. right and it's and it's harder and harder to get them back right as, as time goes on um, psychiatrists and the I think it's called the DCM um, describe schizophrenia as a progressive chronic and incurable disease mm -hmm. so they say basically when you get that diagnosis it's going to be forever yeah. Okay. Um, there was just a noise in the background. That was I actually thought it was outside. I wasn't sure where that yeah, was from. Yeah, it was a vacuum. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that description mm -hmm. of what uh, schizophrenia is. Um, I understand it's a mental illness where people are hearing voices and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I believe that there's a lot more to it. Um, yeah. There's way more to it. Yeah. And yeah. That, that the diagnosis of schizophrenia does limit medicine's ability to understand what's actually happening with the human brain. And do you think it's a matter of uh, basically triaging those things to try to keep people alive? Yeah, of course. Because generally that's what I find most of our medicines about. Yeah. yeah. Mitigating symptoms in order to, for survival, yeah. even if it's just an extra month. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit before I move on about like the safety of people with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So s 
you know, oftentimes you'll say, oh, I, I know someone with schizophrenia and you're instantly afraid of them mm-hmm. because traditionally some of the world's most notorious serial killers and, and violent people have carried the diagnosis of either schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Um, and whether they carry it or not, the speculation is always that. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Now, and I'll well, say... Not always, but generally. Yeah. And, and I will say that I can understand why mm-hmm. they, their illness escalates to the point where they're violent. However, that is a very small percentage of people with this illness who yeah. will escalate to that point. And there has to be other factors in there that, that allow them to reach that point. There has to be a lot of system failures of addressing indicators that they are struggling with a mental illness mm. that have to fail before somebody actually reaches that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think that's most of the information, like general mm. medical things. Um, well, and, and just to put a point on that, like if anyone's listening we're not diagnosing anyone nope. what what we're tr- what she's trying to do is just explain some of the basics mm-hmm. right and that if you if you are experiencing any of these symptoms that maybe you check into it maybe yeah. you go and get an evaluation and by maybe I, I really encourage you to do that if you are experiencing repetitive continuous hallucinations whether it be physical auditory or mm-hmm. otherwise right or mm-hmm. or tactile <sighs> yeah yeah and tactile hallucinations were the first ones I experienced mm-hmm. actually um, as a teenager, and it w- it's when you feel something on your skin that isn't there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we might as well go into my story. Sure. Right. Um, we're gonna like. I'm gonna gloss over my childhood pretty quickly. Um, it was difficult. Um, when I was born, my grandmother was dying of cancer. Right. So my regular outing as a infant was tucked into my mother's coat going into the cancer ward where children weren't allowed Mm -hmm. so my mother could sit with her mother while she died of cancer Mm -hmm. right so that those are like the first few months of my life wow right um my mom actually told me a very interesting story when i was born and she was in the hospital walking the halls in labor with me um there was a woman who was walking through the, the maternity ward saying they took my baby they took my baby mm-hmm. right and this really distressed my mom she's like oh my god what the heck is happening to this woman yeah goes to the nurse finds out that this woman actually was in the mental health area mm-hmm. of the hospital and was suffering from delusions yeah right and you know which is which is kind of interesting it's kind of like foreshadowing of my life yeah <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so um of course she couldn't have known that but um you know there there was a lot of um stress and anger around my family growing up you know i had both parents together i had a little brother and there was there was just a lot of um you know when there's grief and loss there's anger and sadness Mm -hmm. and it comes out in many different ways you know and um the 80s and 90s were not necessarily times when people were really handling those emotions well, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly not for my family. So as a little child, 
I ended up with a imaginary friend, uh, a dragon named Poco. Now, what I think is very interesting about this imaginary friend is I could see him mm. as I can see you sitting there, right? He was just as visual to me as any other experience I had as a mm. child. Uh, and he would tell me, you know, I could just, I could draw him for you. He was that clear to mm. me. He would tell me to go get cookies off the fridge, right? And then I would get in trouble. Poco told me to do it. And then she says, my mom says, Poco's not real. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I questioned, is Poco real? Mm-hmm. And just like fading out into a transporter in Star Trek, mm. Poco like disintegrated and disappeared. Mm. And I never experienced anything quite like that for mm. many, many years to follow. But just that childhood experience, I've talked to other people who have had imaginary friends as a kid. They didn't see them. Mm-hmm. They just felt them or talked to them or don't even remember having them. Mm-hmm. Right. So I felt it was really, uh, it was something I brought up with doctors once I reached the mental hospital later in life because it, it is something that seems indicative to mm-hmm. me of something. Um, I was in counseling from kindergarten, mm. right? I was the weird kid. I didn't fit in. I wasn't, you know, kids weren't nice to me. Eventually, I wasn't nice to them either yeah. because I anticipated their bullying, right? So I became the bully. Mm. It's very artistic, very weird. I wrote stories a lot of things that I wished were happening. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, and then junior high, high school, I started smoking cigarettes. And around age 13, I started smoking cannabis. Mm-hmm. So when I was smoking cannabis, first time I experienced it, I didn't feel anything. You know, but what I, what I noticed about it when I was smoking as a teenager and around my friends is I would experience things that they did not, right? I would hear them like I would be looking at them and their mouth would not be moving, but I would hear them talking mm-hmm. and saying things that were contrary to what they were actually uh, seeming to express, mm-hmm. right? So if they were seeming to express like having a great time and enjoying my company, the hallucination was they were saying what an idiot I am mm-hmm. and how much they hate being around me, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I asked people about this and they didn't experience that. I have one memory when I was 13 going into a bathroom at a gas station just after smoking a joint and looking in the mirror and my eyes were shifting from like the green blue color that they are to red to purple to yellow like Mm -hmm. all of these rainbow of colors just one after the other and it was a really intense change you know, and I'm looking at it thinking that there's something really powerful or mystical happening to me, right? And then I go out and I ask my friends, can you see anything? You know, and they're like, no, you're mm-hmm. fine. Um, you know, I'd regularly have the feeling like I had had an accident, mm-hmm. like I had peed myself, but I never did ever right so just really weird things hallucinations that I would have while I was you were lucky if you never did yeah I was I was Um, 
anyway, so I was having like these hallucinations every time I would smoke cannabis, mm-hmm. right? And that should have been a cue to me, but I just thought, oh, I'm one of the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. I get to experience like a like an acid trip while I'm on cannabis, mm-hmm. right? Um, I never got into chemicals, never did acid, never did uh, cocaine or uh, um, ecstasy, mm-hmm. right? As a teenager, cannabis was really the only thing I did. I did try. Um, a friend of mine brought these red pills to school to to our one of our parties, mm-hmm. and said, "Here, try snorting this." Well, they were cayenne pepper pills <laughs> that her mother was using for health reasons, <laughs> right? So we tried sniffing cayenne pepper, right? That's about the hardest thing I ever did. How did that go? It hurt. <laughs> so second that, I'm like, that would hurt a fuck of a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't just do it once. I did it twice just to check. Make sure it doesn't Make, work. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, teenage exposure to cannabis with a genetic predisposition for schizophrenia mm-hmm. is a dangerous combination. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, eventually, around age 16, I stopped using cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not for good reasons, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I, I was like, oh, I should probably not do this. I should probably live a good life. It was actually because the, the first guy I had fallen in love with broke up with me and I dropped out of high school and started isolating, mm. right? So that was the only reason I quit cannabis, right? Um, and during that time, I was like super isolated, spent a lot of time on the internet. Um, yeah, it was not, it was not a great time. Mm -hmm. You know, I was really lonely. Right. And, um, the internet, like the computers, computers have been my friend since I was like two, Mm -hmm. age two. And my parents actually have weird story about me as an, as a toddler taking their old Vic Commodore computer that was like a completely like green screen Mm -hmm. and somehow doing something to it and they swear up and down that when they came back in the room the screen was colored Mm. i don't know what that's about Mm -hmm. (laughs) right it's a fun story though and um you know playing video games and adventure games and writing stories and like i was there from the cassette tape to the floppy disk, to the hard disk, to the USB, to now in the digital age, Mm -hmm. right? And so computers have always been a big part of my life, right? Um, And I always felt like there was so much that we as humans could learn about ourselves from our use of computers, Mm -hmm. right? Which we're now doing with algorithms a little bit. So around age, you know, 17, 18, I ended up a teen pregnancy. Um, I guess it was 16, 17, pardon me. And um, the person that I was with at that time and his whole family encouraged me to have an abortion. And I want to say very strongly that I am Mm pro-choice. Your body, your pregnancy, your decision. Mm You know, you can ask other people what they think you should do, but it's at the end of the day, it's yours to make that decision. Um, So I decided that an abortion was not appropriate for me, Mm. right? Um, When I first found out that I was pregnant, I was really excited about the idea of being a mom. Mm -hmm. You know, even though everyone around me was like, yeah, no, you are not mom material. Mm. 
you know. <clears throat> so I, I made the decision early, early, early on that I would place this child for adoption. Mm. And so I began looking into different agencies and, um, you know, talked to a couple potential people who might be interested in adopting. Um, and then my mother mentioned that I had a family member who had been having fertility issues mm. and that they might be interested in adopting. So we contacted them. It took them like five minutes to call us back mm -hmm. and make a decision that yes, they would, they would adopt mm -hmm. um, this child. And so I went through the term of pregnancy, um, living, um, knowing that I was going to be placing this child for adoption, mm -hmm. right? Um, things were not fun, right? Like his family became very abusive. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as I did not follow what they wanted, um, it became very hostile, right? I didn't live with them for very long. Um, I left all my stuff behind with the, they had told me, well, after you deliver, I, I knew I had to move out because it was getting very hostile. I was mm -hmm. working at a pizza joint and going to homeschooling, like a, like a special outreach school mm -hmm. and um, driving for their delivery company and cleaning their house and cooking sometimes, mm. right? And so I was exhausted, pregnant, and, um, but they told me, you know, when you move out, leave all your stuff here, and after the baby's born, you can move back, right? So I did, and I left mm. like my, my child baby picture, my childhood baby pictures, mm -hmm. you know, heirlooms that were irreplaceable, artwork my friends had done for me, you know, <clears throat> everything, like, it wasn't great that I had moved in with this guy at age 16 anyway. Mm -hmm. It had really hurt my parents. Um, but moving out and back in with my folks, you know, I was under this assumption that I could trust them and that I would get my stuff back. Mm -hmm. and that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, the night of the delivery was such a weird, surreal event mm. right like it took many hours obviously to get to the point where they were um giving me epidurals and morphine morphine holy i can see why people get addicted to that drug don't tell me yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was standing I, I still smoked and during the pregnancy because they told me at the time you know if you quit it can be harder on your body and actually cause a miscarriage mm. as compared to if you just cut down so I'm standing outside of the hospital in labor, having a cigarette, watching the sun come up, and I'm like, oh, I feel so philosophical. Right, it was just ridiculous, this drug. And um, eventually they ended up giving me uh, emergency cesarean, and, um, and it was actually quite traumatic because I felt like there was like a, a loss of um, my own body autonomy mm -hmm. through that. Um, but whatever we've, we've worked through that the next morning i woke up and my ex was sitting next to my bed and he was kind of playing with like the cords that were attached to my iv and he's like well where is he i said i don't know he said well, i'm here to take him and i started hysterically crying 
right? Like, keep in mind, I'm a couple hours out of major abdominal surgery. Mm. They, they took a, 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 a human out of me, mm. right? And so I'm... Which I'm is a really cool pro procedure, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I just, I started crying hysterically and the nurse comes in and instead of like asking if I'm okay and finding out why I'm crying hysterically, she's mm. just like, can you keep it down? You're bothering the other patients. Right, like there was, there was just this hatred for me as a patient because I was placing my child for adoption mm. at age six, 17, yeah. right? And like there was, there was multiple occasions of abuse mm. from the staff in the hospital, mm -hmm. right? Um, and not protecting me from him in that moment was one of yeah. the ways that they did that. Um, eventually I was able to get some distance from him he was trying to convince me to change the adoption papers and eventually I just had to say no. Mm -hmm. You know, this was the decision we had made. You said you were on board with up until today, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And um, it's not gonna change, mm -hmm. right? Like there, there was nothing that had changed in our situation that convinced me that he was capable or interested in really being a father, mm -hmm. right? I, I still feel good about the decision I made, mm -hmm. um, not the way it went down. Right. So I signed the paper. You got to wait 10 days for the paperwork to clear. You have 10 days to renege on an adoption, uh, a legal adoption here in Canada. Mm. So I said, just leave me alone. I'm healing from surgery. I'm not well, mm. <laughs> right? Postpartum depression's kicking in. I, I, I just placed the child for adoption. I need some freaking space from you, buddy. And... You know, so he, he called me one day, I guess maybe four or five days had gone by since the delivery. And he said, well, um, my parents are planning to do something legal and take him to court or something. Mm -hmm. they, they think they have some loophole that they can take away the baby and I want to come talk to you about it. And, talk, and I said, well, you got to come talk to me and my parents, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm not okay right now and I can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. So he's like, okay, sure, I'll be there at 10. 10 comes, goes. Oh, I'll be there at midnight. I still have to work. Okay. Midnight comes, goes, 2 a.m. I can hear he's drunk mm -hmm. on the phone. I know what's going on. So I basically, we ended up staying up till like 3 o'clock in the morning and then we went to sleep. And uh, my parents were normally like gone during the day mm -hmm. and he knew this. So he showed up the next day around one o'clock in the afternoon at our house when my parents normally would not have been home. Mm -hmm. But because they had been up till 3 a.m., they anticipated this, mm -hmm. right? And they stayed home. He knocked on the door. I didn't want to talk to him. My dad answered the door and he saw me and my dad was closing the door and he broke our, our front door was a seven foot solid oak front door it was, it was a big piece of wood mm -hmm. this guy is a 240 pound guy mm -hmm. my father is like a 140 pound guy mm -hmm busts through the deadbolt, breaks this door off the hinges, 
comes at my father. Now the thing that's relevant is my father is a second degree black belt in judo. So he was able to gently subdue this big dude who's in a violent blind rage mm -hmm. trying to do what God knows what to me and my family. Mm -hmm. Just busted through this door. He subdues him, puts him in a chokehold, doesn't choke him out. That's how much control he has. Mm -hmm. He's able to just keep him down. I wonder if he regrets that. <laughs> it's always a nice memory to choke somebody out. I'm just saying. He, he actually told me that he specifically did not choke him out for my benefit because he did not want me to have to see that. I figured there must have been a reason. Yeah. Like he, he was very, <laughs> he was very much in control of that. Um, so, you know, I'm hysterical. My mom's using the hairdryer and the cord kind of like a nunchuck. Like she's going to like bust him <laughs> with this nunchuck <laughs> hairdryer. I don't know what she was planning there. But um, so the, the police came and I, I talked him out of pressing charges. Mm. Right. And the police just told him like, stay away. And, and he, he made comments that he was going to commit suicide. Mm. Right. And, and I'm like, I can't help you. Like you have to help yourself. I'm trying to help myself right mm. now. You know, like this is a hard time for everybody, mm. you know. I can't fix you, I gotta fix me, right? It was basically the place I was in. Um, following that, there was like some on-again, off-again relationships, some real dysfunctional hiding it from our parents. His mom tried to sue me and the judge basically like humiliated her out of court mm -hmm. because she was using, um, she was using the claim that I owed back rent mm -hmm. as just a way to try and inflict pain on me mm -hmm. when the arrangement had always been, if I was going to school, I don't pay rent. Mm -hmm. If I was working for her company, I don't pay rent. Mm -hmm. I was doing both of those things, right? So as soon as the judge heard that I had gone through a pregnancy, she was not happy with the decision. She just said, get out of my courtroom. Yeah, you know, that's good. Well, yeah, it was good. You know, I was really glad it turned out the way it was. Mm -hmm. But it was just, it was, it was hard for that to be the end. For sure. You know, after years with this family, mm -hmm. you know, now they hate me, right? And um, so yeah, there was a couple of years where um, I was just away from him, separated, trying to build new relationships with people. Um, I was dating online and I um, had started dating someone from Vancouver over the internet so there was like travel back and forth and stuff like this and then one day and, and there was a lot of drinking okay mm -hmm. this is when the drinking really took hold right um, I was old enough to go to the bars now um, and I was like flying to Vancouver to go to f like fancy pubs and stuff like this and and I got a phone call one day and it was, it was just after 9-11, mm. right? Like 9-11 had happened and it was so traumatic to me, mm. right? Like I thought the world was ending. Yeah. Like it was a terrible, terrible event, mm. right? And so it was like a couple weeks after 9-11, I was still reeling. My mom pulls me aside and says, I got a phone call today and I just found out your ex died in a car crash. Mm. 
I had been dealing with him the week before through email. He had sent me a private email asking if I would be the um, officiar. No, what do they call that? Efficient? Uh, for your estate, the beneficiary mm. to your estate. I said, you know, you don't have to ask me about that. Mm. You could just ask your lawyer. Your lawyer would decide yes or no, mm. right? Beneficiaries do not have to sign anything. Yeah, how about this? No, it's um, the other position, estate planner oh, or something. The, uh, executor. Executor. The executor, thank yeah, you. thank you. The executor has to word. sign something. The beneficiary does not. Yeah. You just put them in your will. So I basically said, you're just playing games with me. You know, and a week later, I get a, the news that he had died. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the news that came to me was that he had been um, out at a bar and then drinking and driving. He was really upset about me. He was really upset about everything I had done in, as regard to the adoption mm -hmm. and breaking off our relationship. He went drinking and driving along a gravel road, flipped the car and died. And I took on all the blame. Mm -hmm. Emotionally, mentally, it devastated me. Um, and this, I think, was actually the point when my schizophrenia kicked in. Mm -hmm. Because, and what's interesting is about grief, grief can be so intense that you will start to hear voices, mm -hmm. that you'll start to see things. Right? That you'll start to have like these feelings that someone is holding you from that person who has died. Grief mm -hmm. can be that intense, right? And so when I talk to the psychiatrist about it, they're like, you have depression, you have general anxiety, you have OCD, you have PTSD, mm -hmm. and you have grief, right? This is normal. In their mind, this was totally normal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I started going on antidepressants at this time. And, um, you know, I kind of I kind of had to take on like this black widow complex to try and be OK with the fact that he had passed and it was my fault. Mm. Right. And so I spent years chasing him in a bottle, mm. drunk in the same bars that he had gone to on the same nights that he had gone to drinking heavily constantly right like on the weekends binge you know I didn't do much cannabis around that time but I did do a lot of party girl mm. barfly I was drinking a lot partying a lot mm -hmm. and um, um, you know I won't get into my career or my dating life or anything like that because it's not relevant to the, the final story but <clears throat> um, I will mention like I moved to Toronto mm. well first I moved to Montreal and I moved in with a with a lover in Montreal and that person didn't drink much mm -hmm. but she smoked a lot of cannabis mm. okay so keep in mind I had not used cannabis since I was a teenager really mm. Like I'd smoked it here and there, yeah. but I had not used it daily yeah. since I was a teenager. And you go back and you remember, I was hallucinating every time I was using it as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Now I'm in my 20s and I'm doing it every day, 12 joints a day. Mm. Okay. Like we're, we're talking like heavy use. Mm -hmm. um, 
she had medicinal access, right? So it was all, or a lot of it was medicinal great, you know. Um, <coughs> and living in Montreal, the, the hallucinations moved into full-on delusions mm. right away. You know, um, right away, I, by the time we moved to Toronto, so we were there in Montreal for like eight months, and then I moved to Toronto. By the time I moved to Toronto, I would say I was in full-blown psychosis, mm. right? Um, so this means I was seeing things, I was hearing things, I was feeling things, I was having delusions, and a delusion is like a perception of reality which is not in line with the actual events, mm -hmm. okay? So what does that look like for me? All right. Um, the delusion that kept persisting throughout my entire psychosis was this concept that I was queen of earth, that I was sent to earth to accomplish a mission to save all the people and the planet from the hell that we're living in now, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and this would manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, but w the one thing that I often experienced was when I would be interacting with somebody. So from an outsider's perspective, it would just be two people chatting, hanging out in a bar, smoking a joint. You know, they're, they're young, they're fun, they're having a good time, they're being silly. But there's nothing really else going on, mm -hmm. right? However, from my internal experience, the people I, were ta I was talking to were like the royal court, mm. okay? And they had to assume roles in society which were unassuming in order to protect me um, from being known to mm. the powers that are currently in control of Earth. Okay, and keep in mind, these are all delusions. Mm. So, you know, I'm sitting there with a friend in a bar having a drink. Meanwhile, they're giving me an update on the people who are working to protect me from the Illuminati government or something, mm. right? Like, like something really random. And, and I hear their voice and I see them saying these things, but they're not, mm. right? They're actually just talking about the boy they met last week or whatever. No. Um, so, you know, and there's a couple of strange memories that I have that were absolutely like centered around a hallucination. For example, like around Easter, mm. I kept having this vision of like a giant spider sack mm -hmm. of Easter eggs, right? That was like an art sculpture in my house, right? Mm -hmm. Made with chain and Easter eggs that were painted with Pansky Ukrainian Easter egg designs. Okay, okay so my, uh, my lover at the time, she had some friends come from Montreal to stay with us for Easter. And I'm like at the dinner table in our living room, like with our guests, breaking these eggs as I'm trying to like paint on them while they're sitting there and they're like watching me break these raw eggs and mm -hmm. like eggs everywhere and paint everywhere and wax everywhere. It was just ridiculous. Like so like and I could see it on their face. They're looking at me like what the hell is going on here? Mm -hmm. You know, and these are avid pot smokers yeah. looking at me like what is wrong with her? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, there was another incident which was incredibly 
beautiful and powerful and synchronistic. So again in the spring, so around the same time as, as the spider egg thing, um, I, I had this vision that we had to go outside of the city. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, let's get in the car and just start driving. And as I'm laying there and she's driving, I'm like, I, I'm seeing like a parade for a coronation. Okay. So on either side of the road are people mm-hmm. who are like celebrating and happy and joyous. And they're like, oh, the queen of earth has finally come around mm-hmm. of age and blah, blah, blah. And they're waving at me. And I'm, I'm like in this car and there's a big coronation happening and everything. And then out of nowhere, I would just randomly say, turn here. And I'm not really paying attention to where we're going. Mm. Right. I'm just kind of following my intuition or my delusions at the time. And so he, we, we were driving and then we turn and then turn again at my, at my suggestion. And there's a booth, like a ticket booth for an event center, mm-hmm. a drive through event center. So we get up to the booth and she says, where are we? Like, what is this? Oh, well, this is actually a um, maple syrup farm. And today is the sugar festival. So having grown up in French immersion, mm-hmm. the sugar festival was always something that we did as, as French immersion students, but I had never actually experienced it. So mm-hmm. in the spring, the trees will start running their sap. Yeah. And they'll put a tap into the side of the tree with a bucket he's taking pictures paparazzi (laughs) so he's um the the tree will start dripping sap into the buckets Mm -hmm. and this is this is the harvest time this is the time when there would be a big festival yay we're Mm -hmm. warming up the trees and um they would have uh what's called tire which is when they would put snow like clean pure snow into Mm -hmm. a trough and then pour the hot um, maple syrup onto the cold snow okay and then you'd roll it up with a stick and then eat it off the stick, oh, okay. right? Yeah. Um, they were having, at this event that they were having, they're like 16 bucks to get through the door. You get through the door, you get like a tour of the sugar shack. Mm-hmm. And they were having like horse rides, um, like horse carriage rides and mm-hmm. everything like this. And you could go snowshoeing. So I'm wearing like high heeled, stiletto heeled gray boots, mm-hmm. okay? And decide to go snowshoeing. Because if we go snowshoeing, my delusion tells me that we will find a portal into another universe mm-hmm. in the forest. So I'm like laying in the snow, trying to walk in snowshoes with high-heeled boots, right? Like it was just, again, it was just a comedy of errors. Like it's yeah, just, that's funny. like so many weird <laughs> things, you know? And, and then it, we find this um, bushcraft that somebody had made out of branches from a tree mm-hmm. and I'm like in this house and I'm like this is gonna be our house and somewhere in my delusion it was like going to manifest into a castle or something mm. right and eventually I got cold and we had to go <laughs> right but it was an interesting day right yeah. just because and what really struck me was the synchronicity of the events that I, on a day where I did not know the sugar festival was happening mm-hmm. 
I was somehow able to guide us out of the city and to the sugar festival, right? It was not for want. It was just, just happened. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun accident. And, um, yeah, eventually that, that relationship disintegrated and, um, there was some pretty negative things that happened in Toronto. Toronto mm-hmm. was not the best place for me. Um, it was, you know, it was my small town mentality that I have to go to the big city to understand the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, once the relationship ended, the only thing that changed was more drinking mm-hmm. because my, she didn't drink. Mm-hmm. She just smoked pot. Yeah. So now I'm drinking more and smoking pot. Um, there, there were some situations that I remember, like neighborhoods I would find myself in, walking through graveyards in downtown Toronto at night by mm-hmm. myself. You know, um, b- lots of walks by myself at night that could have really gotten me in danger. Mm-hmm. You know, just really random behavior that was not safe. Um, I got hurt a couple times by strangers that I met in the bar. Um, that was not good for my mental health mm-hmm. either. Um, but we're not going to get into that too much right now. We're focusing on the mental health mm-hmm. component. Appreciate it. So then I was able to get a job in Edmonton. Okay. And I traveled to Edmonton. Also not a great location for me. Um, lots of drinking, cannabis every day. Mm-hmm. And my hallucinations were full bore. And there was a lot of focus on conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Right? So the whole world is out to get me. Right? And everything is dangerous yeah. right um everybody knows who i am as far as being the queen of earth mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the deadline is coming up on my mission to save the earth mm-hmm. right um and so there was a just a lot of erratic unsafe behavior um tons of hallucinations you know i would and the majority of it was like hearing people say things mm-hmm. that they weren't actually saying things, yeah. right? Um, people talking to me that weren't actually talking to me, yeah. right? Um, and then I was fired from my job. Um, and I decided to go with friends of mine to Vancouver for the hockey game. Um, the NHL Cup hockey game. Oh, Stanley Cup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we jump in the truck, we drive there, we show up on game day. I'm carrying around alcohol the whole time, I'm mm-hmm. carrying around cannabis the whole time, and I am wasted, and I am in the middle of a riot, mm-hmm. right? So I saw things like people like drop kicking someone into a window for no apparent reason cars on fire police lines uh police horses chasing people Mm -hmm. before before the game started i'd stopped at a 7-eleven to pick up a bottle of pop on the way back it was gutted all the windows were both busted out Mm -hmm. and there was like flames coming out of it i'm in psychosis Mm -hmm. okay so i'm having like delusions about what's actually happening right now like this isn't just happening here it's happening everywhere around the world Mm -hmm. in this moment um it it was just it was so bizarre Mm -hmm. um that would be a trip it was a trip you know like i'm sure it would be hard for anybody who is not drinking you know um i think like i was not 
I was I was blunted. I was disassociated. Mm-hmm. So as this person's getting like drop kicked into a window, I just keep walking. Mm-hmm. As I'm watching this person light an SUV on fire, I just keep walking. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point I tried to go up to the police line and say, can you let me through? I'm scared and I don't know how to get out of here mm-hmm. with a mask over my face, right? Mm-hmm. Like a bandana. So it's like, they're not going to trust me, obviously, in a riot, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So um, the people I was with were gone. And I eventually was able to find my way out of this disaster, but mm-hmm. I was very drunk. I was very high. I was, I was not okay. Mm-hmm. Like um, when I was on the train on my way to my brother's house, um, I asked somebody like, what stop are we at? And the whole train like turned and was like, is she okay? Right, like that's how out of it I was. Like Mm -hmm. I was probably like really slurring and just a mess. Like, um, and and I'm still really bothered by hockey games, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that event was really difficult. It was like a war zone, I'm sure. Yeah. You know. Sure, it felt like that. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, I stayed with my brother for a little bit and um, was able to land a art studio just off East Hastings, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm in this art studio and I'm trying to make a career for myself, an arts career for myself. Mm-hmm. And um, there's an event coming up called the East Side Culture Crawl, right? So what this was, was all of the art studios in East Van would open their doors and people would go from studio to studio and just seeing what all the other artists are doing. Yeah. Which was fabulous and it was gonna be like the first art event I get to be a part of, right? Mm. And I'm so sick, right? Like, I, I was eating these things called medicine balls mm. just, about, just about every day, right? These are, these are $10 balls of cannabis edibles that's like you never know what the potency is this is all coming from a medicinal shop yeah right so it's quality controlled and all these things um most of what i was smoking came from a medicinal shop because i had a person that i was connected to that Mm -hmm. i was getting it from and uh, but just huge amounts again you know like i had a, a what do they call those a one a one hit that look like a cigarette. Hmm. So, you, so you tap it into the so well. Single pipe thing. Single pipe, yeah. It looked like a cigarette. Mm-hmm. I smoke cigarettes. I smoke cannabis. I smoke cigarettes. I smoke cannabis. I smoked cannabis as much as I smoked cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Right. That's how often I was doing it. Um, and my grip on reality was slowly detaching. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I started seeing my ex who had passed away all over Vancouver, mm-hmm. right? And it was in situations like I'm getting on the train, the doors are closing and I look over and he's like walking up the stairs mm-hmm. off the train. Um, or I'm down on commercial Ave and there's somebody sleeping in on a stairwell mm-hmm. and the stairwell has a whole bunch of things that this person who's sleeping there has for sale. Well, those are all the things that were taken from me mm. when we 
when I moved out. Yeah. Right? Like there's these Christmas ornaments that I recognized as having been mine. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and they're for sale on this step. Well, that's him sleeping there. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there was all of these incidences where I'm, I'm chasing ghosts. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I'm, I'm trying to catch up to this hallucination of my dead ex in a city that I'm not really familiar with. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really high. Um, and really drunk a lot of the time too I'll say that Um, while I'm in the art studio and this art festival is coming up I'm like trying to create some pieces of of jewelry art to present to people Mm. right and at one point I thought you know the the name of the studio was called the onion so I thought oh I'm gonna make an uh, a series of jewelry that looks like an onion and I'm going to layer these very thin layers of metal mm-hmm. and then inject a very thin layer of paint on each of the layers so it kind of like shows a hint of color. Mm-hmm. But I had to figure out, well, how am I going to inject these very thin layers of paint? And what kind of paint am I going to use? So I call the harm reduction team and have them deliver hypo- hypodermic needles to me for free. Mm-hmm because they do this for people who do heroin and, and injectables. Yeah. So, but that seemed totally like logical to mm-hmm. me at the time, yeah. you know? And then I go to a car auto body shop and tell them that they should give me purple car paint for my art project, mm-hmm. right? Like these guys are looking at me, they're like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I look a mess, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm, I'm really sick, you know? And I'm asking for purple car paint for an art project. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just, it was not sane. Mm-hmm. Um, my schedule got flipped around. So, what would happen is I would go to the studio at night. Mm-hmm. I'd show up at like 7 p.m. and work all night until like 10 a.m. And then I would go and sleep. Mm-hmm. And then I'd wake up the next day and do it again. And so, I'm walking at night. I'm, I'm in East Hastings, Vancouver at night. This mm-hmm. is the poorest postal code in Canada, mm-hmm. right? And I'm just like wandering around in my high heel boots, thinking nothing of it, because in my mind, I'm having delusions that I'm actually the queen of earth, mm-hmm. people are protecting me, and I'm on a mission to save the world. Mm-hmm. So back to the arts festival. That day, it, sorry, it started on a Friday and it went until Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I, had, I think I had three pieces of art. Mm-hmm. And then I had like a bunch of paintings of myself on the walls. And the experience of having people come into the studio was entirely a, a hallucination in and of itself because these strangers were coming into the studio. Mm-hmm. I don't know them never met them but my delusion was that they were people I had known and met throughout my life wearing different skin Mm. right so I'm talking to these people as if they're my friend that I've known for years oh hey how's it going it's so great to see you oh my goodness how have things been meanwhile this person has no idea who I am yeah I'm just crazy girl talking to them weird Mm. Right, um, who has no art for sale during an art show. 
right? Like if I had said it was performance art, I'm sure they would have bought that, <laughs> right? Like that's how that's how out of the box it was. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there was a lot of weird experiences, synchronicity, synchronicity with people. Mm -hmm. You know, my writing was a big part of my delusion as well mm -hmm. <clears throat> because I felt that what I was writing was manifesting. Right, and so this person came in to talk to me, read the poems that I had posted on the wall, and started telling me about his experience of how he used to write, but everything he was writing seemed to be coming true, mm -hmm. so he quit writing. And then he said, oh, I'll come back tomorrow with a CD of all of my, all of the stuff I've published, mm -hmm. and you can see it. Then he left, and I never saw him again. Yeah. Right, but it was just very weird conversations that were happening throughout mm. this whole event. Yeah. Um, was there weird conversations about people going, how come you have no art? Um, the, kinda, Yeah. right? Like there was one guy who came in and who saw all of my picture, paintings of myself that mm -hmm. other people had done of me up on the wall. And he saw my, my hand, like printed on regular paper business cards mm -hmm. that had me listed as artist muse designer okay <laughs> i love and, it right and he's like he's like you know you don't have to sell yourself as mm -hmm. an artist right like and he, and he started like giving me this whole lecture about how sometimes artists come out of come into the industry and they feel like they're prostituting themselves mm -hmm. and you know um like he, he went on this huge tangent about you know, let your art speak for itself. You don't mm. have to sell yourself. So there was that conversation, which was kind of like the, where's your art, yeah. <laughs> right? Kind of like you're working hard to tell us you're an artist, but there's no art. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so like there was a couple of those, mm -hmm. you know. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it was just three days of like people coming in and out mm. and having these weird experiences ongoing. Um, so trying to get to the point of like my my mental breakdown mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture of just how bad it was um and i really i really want to tell you a bit about like the delusion behind saving the world mm -hmm. because this was a very uh clear memory mm -hmm. that i have um that i regularly want to write a story about and just haven't gotten around to it mm -hmm. the messages that were coming to me about saving the world were essentially that this was going to be the fall of an empire, mm. right? That, that throughout history, humans had gotten to the pinnacle of what they could achieve in that society during that time, and then they had to abandon Exodus, that city, that society, and go and build a new one, mm -hmm. starting from zero with where they were at now, right? And um, and there are examples of that being true for human history to some degree. Um, but usually there was like a major disaster which forced them to leave a city mm -hmm. or build on top of a city or something like this. So the delusion was that I was to lead a massive exodus from this society that we currently know into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, we would build new cities. Mm. 
and these cities were going to be of a very different design. So um, hexagons were very prevalent throughout this entire delusion. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is um, uh, there's something called sacred geometry, you know, mm -hmm. and it basically talks about how all of matter is a type of geometry, you know, from the atomic scale to the patterns in which life grows. Mm -hmm. And it talked about how humans evolution is a form of sacred geometry. Mm -hmm. You know, you start from singularity one, then you go to 2D, a line, mm -hmm. then you go to three, which is the triangle, then you go to four, which is the houses that we are familiar mm -hmm. with now, right? Boxes, squares, mm -hmm. um, everything's a jail cell, you know, our TVs are square, our food is square, everything's a square, mm -hmm. you know, and then you go into the fifth level of evolution, which is the Pentagon and the big war mm -hmm. machines and the big capitalist machines, right? Um, sorry, and at the one, the singular, you know, mm -hmm. you think about the caves that ancestors were in. The houses were very prevalent to, to the building structures mm -hmm. and the evolution, right? So Pentagon is five and six was going to be the next evolution. So we mm -hmm. were supposed to go into the wilderness and build these new hexagon-shaped cities. Mm -hmm. So if you look around our world right now, most everything is square, mm -hmm. right? So square doors, square walls, rectangular houses, rectangular windows, right? Um, all of that would be replaced with hexagons. Okay. <clears throat> and there was a few reasons for this, which in my delusion seemed incredibly logical. Um, the first of which was water molecules, mm. when frozen, are hexagons. Mm. So we, being the most relevant, the, the majority of humans are made up of water. Like mm -hmm. most of us, is, most of our body is water. Yeah, it was like 80%? Yeah. 90%? Yeah. Yeah, it's like pretty high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So <coughs> essentially, um, we would be returning to a more deep connection with water mm -hmm. um, because this is the source of all life on earth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we would leave our houses, our businesses, everything. We'd all get into like our RVs, our portable houses on wheels, right? All of these things. We'd get out there and we'd start building these hexagon cities, hexagon mm -hmm. buildings with hexagon walls. Like, like I, I can't emphasize how important that shape it was. Mm -hmm. um, and how that... It's all good. Um, Yeah, and most of the city would be built on top of the earth. Mm. Okay, so if you look at the majority of buildings in North America right now, they are dug into the earth. Mm. There is a poured cement foundation, and then everything is built on top of that. Mm. Okay, so this is very contrary to um, the messages I was receiving about, like, don't dig. We mm. no longer have to mine for anything. You know, everything that we need is on top of the surface of the earth now, mm. right? So stop digging, start building these new cities. Mm. Um, these cities would be built with stilts, essentially, 
that would go deep into the earth and then stand on the surface, mm -hmm. right? Instead of cutting into Mother Earth. Um, and they would be built with materials that were recycled. Yeah. So essentially there would be a huge focus on pulling apart the, the cities that exist now mm -hmm. and putting them back together in a different arrangement over here. The locations for these cities were also very specific. Mm -hmm. So currently the majority of cities on Earth are related to water sources, mm -hmm. right? Um, they grew up where there were people gathering and the cities grew and became mm -hmm. what they are today, which is pretty hodgepodge across the planet. But you can, you can pretty much count on if there's a water source, there's going to be a city, a clean water source. But this design for this exodus included having a geodesic grid of locations throughout the earth where these new cities would be built. Mm -hmm. So a geodesic grid is um, a structure of hexagons, of course, that becomes a dome, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think it was back in the early 90s, like biodome was a thing mm -hmm. and, and and they were trying to build that yeah, was a terrible movie is what it was I, I don't even think I saw <laughs> it right but I just know like it's built out of yeah it's built with geodesic dome mm -hmm. structure so basically these these locations would be <coughs> predetermined by a computer that could map out a geodesic grid over the entire earth and that would be the meeting points for the exodus the places where people would go. Okay. So, um, and then each of these cities would be interconnected by a maglev train. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, like imagine you take a map, you draw a hexagon. There's a city at each of the apexes, each of the corners of the hexagon, okay. and each of those cities is connected with a train. Okay. Okay, and that train is like a high-speed bullet train that is above the ground, it never touches the ground. So it never hurts any of the animals on the earth. Mm -hmm. It's in a tube, so it never hurts any of the birds, you know, and humans can travel from like one coast to the other in 25 minutes, mm. right? Like cool. it's massive fast, yeah. like 400K or whatever. And um, that allows humans to separate themselves from this system of transportation as well mm -hmm. because the majority of our the industrial revolution and this society is built off of cars mm -hmm. you know transportation um, combustible engines things mm -hmm. like this right so the next city was not based on that it was based more on human connections connections to the earth um, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Okay, so when you're going through this, because this is intricate, right? Like it's an intricate Very. fantasy, right? Yeah. Like, um, I know it's not a fantasy that you're purposely making it, that was being made up. It's just mm -hmm. the way your brain was translating things, right? Mm -hmm. So every day you're, got, you're going through this in your head, but you're still having to interact out, outwardly. Um, and so like how, how much of a challenge is that? It's extremely for challenging. For lack of a better word. Yeah. Yeah, extremely challenging. Um, I got to a point where I had started making videos mm -hmm. where I was trying to share this message of the exodus mm -hmm. to YouTube, yeah. right? 
But I couldn't just simply do it like you and I are talking right now. I had to dress up. Mm-hmm. I had to like have costumes. I think I had like six different costumes. So wait, what you're telling me right now is that there's videos of you potentially on the internet in costumes. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had my hair in a purple wig. <clears throat> um, I had done it up with styrofoam, so there was two giant pointy cones on either side of my head. Cool. And then I was wearing, I think it was just a black tank top, an army commando skirt, mm, right? And then my boots fishnets maybe I don't remember I'm sitting on a red um, Victorian style couch Mm -hmm. and up in the top left hand corner there's a bookshelf and on top of that bookshelf there's one of those static domes Mm. you know those balls that have lots of static yeah yeah it's like that but it's shaped like a heart oh okay okay and that was the set that I was doing my videos about how to save the world Mm -hmm. and those were on the internet for about 75 days before I deleted them okay because you watch them and you can tell I'm not well yeah right like you I'm trying to communicate the way I'm trying to communicate to you now I'm rambling on this big long story but as coherent as I am now I was like maybe a quarter of that Mm -hmm. well because it would have been just happening at that time Mm -hmm. right you didn't yeah, at that time you don't have the the luxury of hindsight and repetitive telling the story in your head, right? So yeah, yeah. or or um, clarity of thought, like yeah, or the clarity like it, of thought. Like it, yeah. it literally felt like my brain. You know that static ball mm-hmm. where the static <clears throat> is going to every point that you touch on the ball. Yeah, that's what my brain felt like. What do they call those things? I forget. I just call them. You know, s- there's like a ball, and then there's like electricity in the inside, but it makes you can touch it, and it's yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know what we're talking about though, yeah. right? Yeah, I can't. It's just static out. electricity. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know what they're called. All right. Anyway, um, so that's what my thoughts acted like. Mm. That's how inconsistent they were, you know. Um, so no wonder there was a lot of difficulty to live, though, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, I'm what I'm trying to do is, I guess, editorialize a little bit, right? Just mm-hmm. because the the story is so intricate that it would be pretty easy to get lost in that story, right? Yeah. Like trying to articulate that in a way that helps people understand trying to get through every day would have been nothing short of a challenge right? mm-hmm. like nothing short of a especially if the delusions were high mm-hmm. and your interaction with other people had to be high as well like i mean by high i just mean a lot of interaction mm-hmm. right um did so like how how were the people in your life like how was your brother reacting to that because I have siblings, right? So if they were acting in that way, I would definitely say something. Well, my brother was actually the catalyst okay. to me asking for help. Okay. So I asked, one day I locked myself out of my studio. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother had to come and help me. It was boxing day, so he had other things to do. And he straight up said to me, you know, I don't like the direction your life is going in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you are having a hard, like you're having chaos around you constantly. Mm-hmm. You're having a hard time dealing with life. You know, he could not understand though the depth of what I was experiencing. Yeah, yeah. Right, because I, I knew enough not to talk about what I was experiencing. No shit, yeah. You know, um, I would frame it in the sense of this is art, mm-hmm. right? And so therefore it is not, I'm not sick because this is art, yeah. right? Um, 
so once he spoke to me on on boxing day and told me that he was feeling these things um these were the first steps towards me asking for help Mm -hmm. because i i started to realize like my capacity for if if hypothetically in my delusion if i was in charge of trying to save the earth i was too far gone to be of any help to anyone right And what I now think is a lot of that was basically my inner being trying to express that I'm sick Mm -hmm. and I need to save myself. Yeah, as a manifestation, right? Right. Yeah. You know, and I I really went into the the depth of the detail Mm -hmm. just to help people understand how real it seems. Yeah, no, I got that for sure. That's that's 100%. So I'm sorry for rambling for as long as I did. I wasn't suggesting you were rambling. What I was getting at was there's going to be people who are listening who could easily get lost in the in the delusion yeah. as opposed to the reason of telling the delusion is to connect it to the reality yeah right and and to try to illustrate how absolute how difficult it fucking is <laughs> to live with um, that type of illness mm-hmm. right so that's all I was doing I'm not suggesting yeah. a rambling 100% not rambling yeah. yeah well and I remember one day I went to a sandwich shop mm-hmm. to get lunch I didn't eat very often but when I did I went into this fancy sandwich shop mm-hmm. and got like a $12 steak sub of some kind, mm-hmm. right? And I remember hearing these people watching me and talking about me, right? And I'm pretty certain that they actually said this. Mm-hmm. They, they were discussing amongst themselves and said, you know, how can people like that afford food like this? Mm-hmm. You know, and the other guy says, well, they don't have mortgages, they don't have houses, they're not paying mm-hmm. rent, they're not paying bills, so... Mm-hmm. You know, they might as well buy a sandwich. Yeah. You know, and um, you know that's an example of what I looked like mm-hmm. to the outside world. Yeah. You know, like I did not look well either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my um, big crash after um, after Boxing Day was uh, the day before Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. I finally was in a situation where I was being kicked out of the place I was living in, which was which was a scary house anyway, mm. um, living with somebody who was recovering from a crack addiction by using cannabis. Mm. Um, I'm not advocating against harm reduction. I'm just saying that's mm. not a great situation to be in. That specific scenario was no good. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was packing around my gold and gemstones mm-hmm. because like the apocalypse was coming and I had to be ready. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wearing costumes every day uh, mostly a gypsy costume, right? Like where I know gypsy is a slur. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to say that. But we know what you're referring to when you use the word. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So mostly, mostly a costume that was kind of like Italian's Renaissance Roma, mm-hmm. right? So lots of tassels and yeah. and everything like that. And um, so historically, what's been classified as a gypsy yeah. type thing? Yeah. Um, so I was. Uh, in my studio and I had this metal and this story will probably be very triggering for some people because it was my suicide attempt Mm. right Um, I was convinced that my throat chakra was too loud Mm. for the rest of the people on earth and that my voice was too intense so I needed to silence it Mm. so I had a solid metal pick that I used for engraving on metal Mm -hmm. and I took this and 
my memory is that I jabbed that directly into my throat. Mm -hmm. But then I blink and I'm holding it just a couple inches from me, right? Mm -hmm. I don't actually know what happened in that moment, but I do know I don't have any wounds, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm not sure what happened there. People with schizophrenia are more likely to harm themselves and die of suicide than anything else, Mm -hmm. right? And it could have very easily have happened in that moment. Yeah. Right? Like You see how quick it could happen. It, I, there was no thought behind mm-hmm. it. There was no decision. Yeah. It was just an impulse. Yeah. Right? Um, and I'm not sure what stopped me that day, but I eventually, I went back to the place I was being kicked out of, and I called my father, and I said, everything's ruined. You know, like, everything's falling apart. I need help. I don't know what to do. You know, like, I didn't even know what to ask for help with. Yeah. That was the hard part. So he came to Vancouver, put all my stuff in storage, flew me back to Alberta. As I'm sitting on the airplane, I'm like holding a little flashlight up towards the roof because I was convinced that that would keep the plane from crashing. Mm. Right. Um, I quit smoking cannabis at that point. Mm. Right? Like after I left Vancouver, I did not smoke cannabis. But when I got to Red, when I got to Alberta, mm-hmm. I um, went to the hospital, and the doctor was horrible. Um, the doctor, you know, basically said she seems a bit dehydrated. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's this and this wrong with her, but she's fine. Mm-hmm. She's she's just a she's just a drug addict. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they really had no consideration for my mental health well-being. But I could not articulate what was happening to me. Yeah. Right. So I tried going through the um, recovery network of like 12-step recovery meetings, AA, mm-hmm. ADAC. I, I started going to all of these different meetings um, in an attempt to get sober. Mm-hmm. So my last drink of alcohol was on January 11th of 2012. And I had convinced my folks who I was staying with at the time that I needed to have this drink of rosé wine because the antioxidants in the wine will help per, help relieve my depression, mm-hmm. right? Like, just like really twisted thinking. And that's pretty typical alcoholic thinking. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that. that's kind of like lots of people's thinking when it comes to the wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. a lot of alcoholics will find any reason. You know, doctor says you should have a glass of wine every day, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing, excuses to justify it, right? So that was my last drink. And I was regularly, I was going to three meetings a day. Mm-hmm. I'd wake up, I'd go to the ADAC meeting, I'd go to the nooner meeting, I'd go to an evening meeting. You know, I'd be hanging out with other people in the program all day, mm-hmm. you know, like anything to just not use. Yeah. I was such a mess, right? And good. then I... Um, attended something called a table meeting. Mm. So uh, this is a very rare concept. I've never encountered anyone who's ever heard of this before. So it was at a private treatment center just outside of... Some someplace. Someplace. And a table meeting to them basically meant everybody would work through eight steps of recovery in one day. Mm. So you showed up at 9 o'clock in the morning. You're sitting with your feet flat on the floor straight back chair that was very uncomfortable with legal sized pieces of paper and a red pen. Mm-hmm. 
there's a table up at the front of the room with 12 people sitting on it and everyone else is sitting scattered throughout the room and at the front the 12 people who are sitting up there they're sharing their experience of recovery and addiction and they're they're yelling at you on what you should write write down your defects of character how much did you drink how much did you smoke mm -hmm. who did you steal from right so constantly throughout the entire day that stimulation up front yeah. is happening while you are writing down everything you've ever done in addiction mm -hmm. okay so this is a pretty high stimulation environment for sure let alone for somebody who's in psychosis mm -hmm. and i should mention has been in psychosis continuously for five years at that point yeah yeah so my delusion was that at the front of that table that was like god and the devil and all the angels mm -hmm. who were battling over my soul and my decisions would inf impact whether or not the people i loved would survive mm -hmm. because the people i loved my friends and family were in that room again wearing different skin yeah so all of these strangers in the room i have no idea who they are are actually my friends and family in mm -hmm. my mind and so i had like this moment where it was like sodom and gomorrah where mm -hmm. i have to leave and never look back if mm -hmm. i want to save them and it's january it's dark at nighttime. it's like five o'clock at night i think and i'm walking along the side of a highway during a blizzard mm -hmm. for 10 kilometers in psychosis yeah right trying to escape my hallucination thankfully someone found me mm -hmm. the person who had brought me to this table meeting um, went looking for me you know couldn't find me at the center couldn't find me on the grounds went driving to mm -hmm. look for me and eventually 10 kilometers away found me on the side of the highway Thank walking God. frozen cold mm -hmm, no shit. and um took me back and, and i was terrified because i was still in the in the concept that if i returned yeah. and saw if i looked back everyone would die mm. right so this unfortunate soul had to read through my entire inventory that i had spent the entire day writing oh geez and and i still to this day feel terrible about that like mm. i've apologized but um but yeah so they had to read my fifth step for me Oh, I see. They had to read it for you? Yeah. At that thing? Because I would not look. Oh, I got right? you. Like, I I'm covering Sorry, my I got, eyes. I got lost there, yeah. Yeah, it, it's a confusing story. Not really. But, so, like, because I was afraid to look, because if mm -hmm. I looked, it would kill the people I love. Yeah. So, in order to complete the table meeting, work through my eight steps. You had to have him do it. I, got I had to have him yeah. read the, the 12 pages mm -hmm. of inventory that I had. At least 12. I'm sure it was more. So then he calls my parents. Mm -hmm. My parents take me to the hospital. Yeah. Once we get to the hospital, they're able to assess that I am a danger to myself. Mm -hmm. That is the only legal way in Canada that somebody can be committed to a mental institution mm -hmm. um, against their will, yeah. right? So uh, being certified means that a psychiatrist has deemed that you are a danger to yourself mm -hmm. and others. They have certified that you must remain there for yeah. 30 days. Okay, 
So I was taken to the Pinoca Centennial Hospital for mental health and brain injury. Mm-hmm. And I was on lockdown for like three weeks, like not allowed out of the room mm-hmm. or the ward I was in, you know, not even to have a cigarette. Yeah. Um, there was like daily visits with the doctors trying to stabilize me on medication, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, I honestly don't remember a whole lot about that time yeah. because the medication was so intense, Yeah. right? Um, yeah, like it was, I think they had me on six different medications at mm-hmm. one point, right? Just trying to stabilize me. Yeah. So then once I was out of lockdown, then I was allowed to go throughout the hospital. I started going to counseling and there was a, a, a chapel that had a labyrinth inside the chapel. Mm. So, and I, I mentioned this because it is really relevant to brain activity, okay? So a labyrinth is a um, pattern of curves and swirls, mm-hmm. right? And it's usually in a circle. And the entrance is the same as the exit, okay? So you enter the same way, you go in the same way you come out. Mm-hmm. And so I would go into this chapel just about every day and I would walk this labyrinth. Mm. And what I understood is that every time you're walking a labyrinth, it's recalibrating your brain, mm-hmm. right? So it's changing the patterns of neural activity that are happening inside your head. Mm-hmm. So I went to counseling and I, I went and painted ceramics and um, yeah, they tried me on quite a few different types of medication. Mm-hmm. My family was incredible. My parents visited me like every week, Yeah. right? And um, eventually I was accepted into the, eventually I was stabilized. Let, yeah. me, let me say that first. Um, at the time, the doctors in the, tr- in the, air, the first area I was in uh, assessed that it was probably a drug-induced psychosis, mm-hmm. right? Um, brought on by cannabis, right? And I was moved from there, I was accepted into the dual diagnosis ward, which addresses mental illness and addiction. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, there was one girl in that program who said to me, you know, people are dying to get in here, right? And it's true, because there's so many people with mental illnesses Mm -hmm. that never get treatment. And I was so lucky to be able to attend that program. Mm -hmm. You know, to understand the intersections of mental health and addiction, how they feed off of each other. Yeah. I was going to let you go out and then I was... Yeah, so the intersections of mental illness and addiction Mm -hmm. and how they can feed off of each other and how if one slip of your mental health occurs Mm -hmm. it can cause a complete relapse in your addiction recovery and vice versa too exactly yeah yeah and and so just learning to understand those dynamics was really important in total i was at the pinoca hospital for 66 days okay i was certified three times Mm -hmm. no i'm sorry i was certified twice so two days two days of 30 back to back so 60 days 60 days back to back Mm -hmm. and then six days and then I was released and so it was um, an amazing experience for Mm -hmm. me 
as an artist, there was a part of me that kind of felt like that was like an accomplishment, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because in, in some of the art communities, you know, they say you're never going to be a great creative mind unless you've had a complete mental breakdown and end up in a mental hospital. Mm-hmm. Good point. You know, and, that, and that's a terrible narrative yeah. to perpetuate, but that is what I felt at the yeah. time. From there, I went to um, Aventa Women's Treatment for uh, Aventa Women's Addiction Treatment Center, mm-hmm. and I was in their 21-day program first, and then I was accepted into their Phase Two program, which is a three-month um, live-in residential program, okay. and I did that twice. Nice. So in total, from the moment I was admitted to the hospital until mm-hmm. the moment I left residential addiction treatment, I was in for a year. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> and that was probably the best possible thing that could happen mm-hmm. for anyone with an addiction, let alone somebody with an addiction and a mental health disability. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I jumped ahead. I forgot to mention how I got diagnosed. So um, okay. <clears throat> at the dual diagnosis mental health addiction treatment center Mm -hmm. um, I met with another doctor and that doctor assessed me so that assessment process took uh, many I think it was three days or four days Mm -hmm. you know of of doing this right discussing events that had happened in my life um, in depth and then reviewing my current symptoms my past symptoms past diagnoses and it was at this time that the doctor told me uh, that he believed I have schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And so it was a shock yeah. to the system. No doubt. Before you go on, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, you, the, so sorry, I wanted to make a statement and ask a question. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say, at this point, you just described it took a doctor, a trained psychiatrist, I'm assuming a psychiatrist, yep. um, three days to determine with extensive interviews Mm -hmm. to determine what was potentially going on for you Mm -hmm. right so the reason i'm pointing this out is because there's going to be people out there who ask their brother who ask their buddies who ask their like strangers Mm -hmm. whether they think they have an illness so what i'm getting at is the only place we need to go for that kind of information is probably people who are qualified right agreed and i'm saying that because i know there's a lot of people out there that as soon as some people give a symptom of something it could be just a random anyone. Mm-hmm. They hear the symptom and they start making diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? So just to reiterate that, it took three days for a trained psychiatrist who works in a hospital yep. to determine what you had. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't just based on three days worth of information. That was based on a bunch of information leading up to that three days, mm-hmm. as well as everything you provided in those three days. Mm-hmm. And, and 30 years of mental health, um, like, living being within the mental health system yeah whether it was being assessed by counselors Mm -hmm. therapists psychiatrists psychologists medical doctors right like all of these things were involved in my mental health care i was not someone who Mm -hmm. slipped through the the cracks Mm -hmm. okay like there was ongoing care for me throughout my entire life yeah right it was just and so those things equaled the diagnosis Mm -hmm. it wasn't like it's not in passing when you talk about when someone might be talking to a friend and the friend says oh well I think you might have this yeah so like I I, because part of ending the stigma is getting away from that stuff it is right yeah 
Sorry, go ahead. And getting away from uh, like flippantly using terms like, oh, you're just crazy. Exactly. You know, yeah. or, oh, that's <clears throat> so schizophrenic, right? When yeah. people say things like that, Mm-hmm. usually for one it doesn't mean what they think it means yeah it's not even right? relevant most of the time yeah, yeah. and then um, when people say oh you're just so crazy yeah you know it's completely irrelevant to the mm. to the entire interaction you're having with them you know and well, it, it hurts. especially it hurts right yeah but all they're really talking about is a specific behavior yeah. they're referencing something specific they're not referencing your state of mental health right? Mm-hmm. like and, and so when we use those words flippantly, we, we do. We just absolutely are disregarding anyone who happens to be around who may potentially be carrying some sort of illness. Yeah. Whether it's like, whether the three of us or whoever is sitting around talking about whatever illness we might be talking about. Mm-hmm. The, the big difference is, is that addiction and mental health are, the, are two of the biggest ones where people seem to have carte blanche mm-hmm. to make fun of and to stigmatize it. Whereas if we were to do the same with, like you said, diabetes or cancer, well, we'd be pariahs, Yeah. right? Like, and rightfully so, we'd be pariahs. Of course. Right? Yeah. But it's no different when talking about mental illness or addiction, Mm-mm. in my mind, right? So Mm-mm. anyway, I just wanted to make a point of that because I know in some, t- some of the circles I walk in, people are pretty quick to make diagnoses for other people and themselves mm. out of very limited information, right? Um, and you know, it's not enough information that somebody was related to somebody who knew somebody. Mm. Like that's even, like it's just not enough information, right? So um, I just want to make that clear to people that that's not what this is about, yep. right? It's about going through a process that takes time. And it takes time so that people can see, not just the doctors, but, but yourself, that you can see the symptoms happening over a period of time to actually make some sense of it, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, it's you're not depressed. You don't have depression if you're sad for for if you're sad because you've lost somebody you love. That's not depression. It could be situational depression, absolutely. But but chances are good for most people it's going to pass. Yeah. In time, however long that that time frame is. So yeah. Anyway, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the grief and depression are very different animals. Very different animals. Yeah. So I don't want to go down another rabbit hole. I just I wanted to just make a point of that. Yeah. And and great points to make. Mm. to you know yeah uh don't diagnose yourself Mm -hmm. don't diagnose other people yeah uh don't make assumptions Mm -hmm. about other people's mental illnesses yeah you know um the the most difficult thing about this diagnosis has been disclosure yeah i have lost friends every time i have disclosed yeah right and and that has been why uh, it's difficult mm-hmm. to tell this story, right? Yeah, no like doubt. I understand how important it is for everyone to hear this because of the stigma, because mm-hmm. of the misinformation, because of the one and on one in one hundred people who has mm-hmm. some degree of this illness that is hiding it, right? Um, yeah. Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and some varieties of general anxiety disorder and OCD are what are categorized as a mental health disability. Mm-hmm. Okay. So any mental illness, anything can become debilitating yeah. and become a disability. Yeah. Um, but the moment you get a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar, I believe it's two, it's 
regarded as a disability yeah. because it will affect your whole life. Because it absolutely does impact every part of your life. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, so when I got out of treatment, I, I wanted to prove that wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, so immediately I jump into going back to work. Yeah. Because if you're not working, you're not contributing to society according to the entire boomer generation that raised us. Right? Yeah, we're teaching them a lesson right now, though. Yeah. <laughs> right, during, boomers? During this COVID <laughs> thing. Um, we're highly successful boomers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, digress. I couldn't resist the joke. <laughs> yeah. My bad. Um, where was I? I was talking about going back to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I tried really hard. You know, but the medication that I was on uh, was a sedative. Mm. So I would take it at night around 10 o'clock. It had a 12-hour turnaround wow. before I could be awake again. And I was supposed to be at work by 10 o'clock. Yeah. Right. And I'm barely getting my ass out of bed. Yeah. Right. And so, like, uh, the, the employer I was with, you know, made some accommodations for me mm -hmm. when possible. But... I couldn't articulate what was wrong with me. Yeah. I couldn't say, this is my disability, this is the medication I'm taking, yeah. right? Because it wasn't a safe place. No, it wasn't a safe place. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I was still scared, mm -hmm. right? I didn't want to. I wanted to be a yeah. productive member of society, you know? And in my understanding at that time, the only way you could do that is if you had a job, you were paying a bill, and you were living by yourself, mm -hmm. right? Or had a partner. You know, so I had a very narrow view of what productive society member meant, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, you were basically on what you'd been through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so I I, I had another crash, mm -hmm. right? Like, it, it was not, and, and keeping in mind, at the time I was attending 12-step um, meetings, mm -hmm. I was very active in the recovery community at this time. And sober. And sober, yeah. yep. Um, I was trying to help other people. And, and by sharing my story, this story, in the rooms of AA, of, of recovery, mm -hmm. you know, and, and trying to, you know, end the stigma, be seen mm -hmm. for who I am. And, and in some ways that was good because I was able to connect with people who had been through similar experiences, mm -hmm. specifically with cannabis and having it onset schizophrenia for them, yeah. right? And so I had a couple sponsees that I worked with um, as best I could, but you know, it's sometimes it feels like the blind leading the blind, it's right? Like I was, yeah. I was in, I was still in my like second year of recovery. Still feels that way at 16 years almost. Right, yeah. like it's just like it's still hard. Like I, I have so much respect and value for the the peer support systems, which recognizes that once you've been through hell it's a lot easier to help someone else get out of it. Yeah. yeah. Right? More so than someone who's never been there. Yeah. But at the same time, going back into hell is still hard. Yeah. Right? And... and that sulfur smell. It is. Yeah. It's nasty. It's like rotten eggs. Mm -hmm. And I wanted really badly to be perceived as somebody that could help other people that mm -hmm. way. Uh, but what ended up happening is there was a lot of you know, back, back room chatter about my mental illness, mm -hmm. you know, and I, the, the rooms weren't as safe for me as I would want them to be, yeah. you know, um, which put other people at risk because my reputation as somebody who has schizophrenia 
would affect them. So I mm -hmm. would lose friends that way. Yeah. So the rooms just became a, a really dangerous, I shouldn't say dangerous, a really unsafe place. It sounds like an isolated place. Too. Yeah, it was isolated. Yeah. yeah, because I had to be careful who I would spend time with. Yeah. You know, um, anyone who had been to my speaker meetings, mm -hmm. you know, knew who I was and what I had experienced mm -hmm. and, and how that manifested itself. And some people, that made me more endearing, mm -hmm. you know, because look at how far she's come. Yeah. You know, um, to other people, that made me a threat. Yeah. Right. And so, and I can't control other people's opinion of me. I just got to do my True. best, you know. Um, and my best happened to be just staying sober and staying mentally well. Mm -hmm. um, and where, oh, my, my crash. Yeah. Um, in the rooms of AA, sorry, in the rooms of recovery. We say AA all the time. Oh, right? do you? Oh, okay, yeah. sorry. Um, We're not reps of it, but we talk about no, it. No, but yeah, yeah. There, was, there was a lot of people that if you disclose that you were on any type of psychiatric medication, they believe this is a mind-altering substance and therefore you have relapsed. Yeah. This is one of the single most dangerous narratives. Irresponsible. Irresponsible, life-threatening narratives in yeah. the rooms of recovery. It's one and, of them. And it, the other one is <laughs> There's that you won't... There's a few of them. Yeah, I'll also say that <laughs> this concept that you won't get sober if you don't get God is also very dangerous. Yeah. But the one about antidepressants and uh, other medications? psychiatric yeah. medications is, is deadly. Um, as far as like mental illness and suicide rates, mm -hmm. schizophrenia is the second highest suicide rate of any mental illness. Yeah. The only one that is worse than that is anorexia mm -hmm. okay as far as addictions go gambling has the highest rate of suicide yeah okay so if you're coming into those rooms and you're saying to people don't take your medicine yeah and there's somebody like me mm -hmm. who my medicine is keeping me from killing myself mm -hmm. you are giving bad bad advice by saying don't take your medicine okay no matter who no matter what reason is behind them saying it it's bad advice it's terrible no advice. matter what yeah 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 and i even had some well-meaning uh people say things like you know i was diagnosed with bipolar i got sober i went back and i got re-diagnosed and i don't have bipolar now mm -hmm. that's fabulous mm -hmm. you know and i am so happy for that person that it worked out that way that yeah. it worked out that way mm -hmm. but that shouldn't be a concept that we perpetuate is going to happen to everybody yeah be well, yeah, you're right, because we know better. Mm -hmm. We know that that's not going to happen for everybody. Right. We're talking, like you said earlier, we're talking about chemical imbalances in the brain. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about, like, building Legos on yeah. the floor, right? We're talking about stuff that, first of all, we have no control over, mm -hmm. right? The chemicals and how they're balanced in there. Like, we have some say in what we can put into our body yeah. to help manage those chemicals, but we don't get to tell where the neurons go and where they don't. No. And, and I, you know, I... I, I don't even know how logical this is. I know that depression and anxiety are mm -hmm. directly related to chemicals and hormones. Mm -hmm. My fringe scientific theory mm -hmm. about schizophrenia is that it's actually electrical. Mm. It, who knows? It might be. It might be. But I don't know. The reality is we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, yeah. we don't understand the brain. Yeah. We That's don't exactly understand what causes it. We don't fully understand it. We don't understand it. And so, therefore, you know, armchair scientists like myself have yeah. no place to tell anyone else how to manage their health mm -hmm. you know you have to go with 
the people who are trained. Well, or you can simply say, well, what works for you? What works for you? Right. Yeah. Because if, if a person, most people have an idea what mm -hmm. works for them, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, until they know, they don't know. Mm -mm. So, yeah, anyway, I, yeah. I totally took us down a different path, but. It's a good, it's a good path to go on. Um, mm. Because then I, I tried going off all of my medication. Okay. And I had a terrible crash. I ended up at the hospital. Mm -hmm. My parents came to see me. I was only in there for a day. Yeah. Um, and then I was released because I was safe around people who would be able to take care of me. Yeah. Um, went back on my medication, restabilized, mm -hmm. realized I just, I, the, the concepts of what life was like prior to my diagnosis yeah. were not going to be a reality for me moving forward. Mm -hmm. That was really hard, yeah. really hard. It's still hard, yeah. you know, because I had this vision of who I was going to be, you know, mm -hmm. and it was gone. Yeah. It, 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 that person was not going to come back. Yeah. And what I learned when I was taking, um, mental health treatment for schizophrenia is when somebody's mind has a schizophrenic shift, mm -hmm. they, uh, it, it permanently alters the brain. And it's like, uh, it's like a path in the grass. Mm -hmm. You know, if you keep walking that path, you know, it'll become a permanent part of your Neuro neurology. Yeah, is that the right word? Neurology. Neuro neurological sure. functioning. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I had to stay very far away from discussing this type of thing, mm -hmm. because every time I rediscuss these things, it, it kind of triggers those old neural pathways of mm -hmm. when I was in psychosis. Yeah. Right. And if you trigger those enough times, it can yeah. bring it on. Yeah. Right. So it was. Because it'll remember, right? If right. you do it enough, it'll remember and go back there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it was, it was very, like I avoided support groups about it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I did go to therapy. Um, the therapist actually said, um, now, and keep me in mind, the therapist said this, not the psychiatrist. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, I'm emphasizing that because I do believe there was a, I know there was a mismanagement of my mental health and it mm -hmm. was addressed. Um, the therapist diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. The psychiatrist confirmed that diagnosis mm -hmm. did seem accurate. The therapist said that it was likely that I was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, that my hallucinations were entirely because of my borderline personality disorder mm -hmm. diagnosis. Borderline personality disorder is a reaction mm -hmm. to a stressful upbringing mm -hmm. it's a coping mechanism yeah. okay it's very common in people with addiction issues because addiction is often a coping mechanism yeah. right so the the treatment for bpd as they call it is uh something called dialectical behavior therapy mm -hmm. so dbt yeah so there's a bunch of acronyms flying around and the reason DBT works is because it was created by someone mm -hmm. who has borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Okay. So it's a two-year program here in Calgary, right? And you attend it twice a week, mm -hmm. every week for two years, right? And um, during this time, I, I was under the impression that I was probably misdiagnosed mm -hmm. and that I was probably not schizophrenic mm -hmm. 
Okay, that's unfortunate. And I probably made some decisions that in retrospect I might not have had that medical professional not suggested that. The therapist, right? Yeah. Yeah. So mistakes were made on both sides of the fence. Yeah. You know, and and there are some things that I did during that time that I'm really happy I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I feel very proud of accomplishing. Yeah. But I probably wouldn't have been allowed to had I been moving through the world with the label of schizophrenia. Mm, okay. okay. So that's as far as into that I'll go. Yeah. But um, after that, I go back into the psychiatrist, you know, and they reassess me. And they're like, yep, diagnosis is still accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in my day-to-day life, I'm, I'm still experiencing hallucinations yeah right um they're not debilitating i know they're happening right which is a very unique um unique thing Mm -hmm. right and and doesn't happen with everybody so i'm very lucky that i have this where when something happens i'm usually aware that's probably not real yeah right um so like uh the neighbor's across the street, it's probably not likely that they're talking about me and watching me with a telescope. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not actually that interesting (laughs) in my day-to-day life. I don't know. Right? I think it just depends who you ask. But, but I mean, the the likelihood is that they're not. Mm -hmm. You know, even if my brain says that they are. Yeah, chances are. Yeah. Um, So there's things that happen on a regular basis that tell me that yes, that the diagnosis is likely correct, Mm -hmm. you know, as correct as a medical diagnosis can be with our current understanding of the brain. Yeah, well said. Because I don't feel the label accurately reflects what's happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. If, if in some countries where traditional medicine is practiced mm-hmm. above the Western medical model, mm-hmm. Okay, there's, there's a more of a community focus on mental illness. So if somebody comes out and says, I'm having this delusion, you know, that this is happening. The whole community... Those are specific cultures, right? Yeah, specific yeah. cultures, you know, and, and most of them are like earth-based indigenous cultures, mm-hmm. you know, where you come out and say, you know, I believe this, you know, I believe the neighbors are watching me through a telescope. Mm-hmm. The whole community will rally around you to help you experience and move through those hallucinations Mm -hmm. in a supportive, affirming manner. They don't tell you it's not real. They help you discover what is real, Mm -hmm. why you feel that might have been happening, right? It's a very supportive, nurturing environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And and a lot, there's very low rates of schizophrenia in these communities because they appear to recover, Mm. okay? What's also notable about these communities is people who have what we would refer to in the Western medicine as schizophrenic episodes. Mm -hmm. When they experience them, they see it as an awakening, a spiritual Mm -hmm. shift, which prepares them, which indicates to the community that they are likely a healer, a seer, Mm -hmm. a a magic person, a shaman, Mm -hmm. right? And and should begin the path of training towards being 
a member of the community mm-hmm. which provides those services. Yeah. That sounds way better than what I went through at yeah, this point. It totally does. I yeah. have all kinds of thoughts on that, but go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, but we don't have stats on like how well do that do they manage in those or, or situations, whether, or whether it would work in a in a in a larger scale, right? right? Like, I mean, there's lots of things. That's what was just kind of kicking off my brain. It's like that's awesome for those specific environments, maybe, yeah. but maybe it doesn't work the same. Like, yeah. I I don't I don't imagine it would work the same in like say an environment like Calgary, mm-hmm. right? Just yeah. with sheer population um, and the way our culture w- works today. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what would work better. Yeah. Please. Is if, you know, if somebody starts talking to you on the street. Yeah. And they're rambling about something that sounds completely impossible. Mm-hmm. To say something affirming, like, "Wow, it sounds like you're experiencing a lot of stuff today," mm-hmm. as compared to, "You're crazy. Get away from me." Mm-hmm. That would be a better scenario. Right? I really hope we're moving there. I believe we are. I hope. I you hope know, so. yeah. and and the reason I bring up like these alternate view worldview of what delusions present to the community mm-hmm. how the community deals with it is because we're just on the precipice of the medical community studying this yeah okay uh, well you said it earlier that we don't know enough about the brain to say it's mm-hmm. not true or it is true no right like it's it's more it's easier to say we just don't know yeah and that's more accurate yeah and, and right now, the medical community says that if you recover from schizophrenia, you were just misdiagnosed. Yeah. You never had it. Yeah, which is a good way to say the doctor just was wrong. Well, it, it, it just sticks to the rigidity of their diagnosis. Yeah. Of, of like what the DCM says, this is the small, narrow criteria mm-hmm. of people. And if they don't fit in this box, yeah. then they don't belong in this box, right? Like it's just, it's too narrow. Yeah. Right. And I think every box eventually is too small. Yeah. 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 And, and so I, like, I'd like to see, there, there's a whole movement called Mad Pride, mm. right? And it started in Europe and it's basically about like how the medical system mismanages people when they have instances like this, like you yeah. mentioned about the triage, mm-hmm. you know, and just trying to like circumvent the worst case scenario yeah. rather than you know, lift people up from where they're at, yeah. you know, like yeah. it, the, there's a whole movements about it. And, and I really support what they're moving towards, which is a place mm-hmm. where there's this combination of Western science and traditional ways of knowing yeah. combined yeah. towards mental health and wellness. Man, we would be, we would be doing probably way better if we combined the two for all of our health stuff. Ab. Right, whether physical or mental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Yeah. So I mean, I today, I mean, I'm eight years without cannabis. Mm-hmm. I'm eight years without alcohol. Mm-hmm. I am four years without hospitalization of any kind mm-hmm. for my mental illness, uh, which is a great achievement, and it, it, I would regard that as like a mental health recovery. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, you know, that's kind of how we measure our recovery yeah. in, in the dual diagnosis world. Um, and I mean, like part of me asked the question when I, when I decided to tell this story, like where do you want to go from here? Mm-hmm. Right? Like it would be great if I could fully 
disclose and say, this is who I am, this is what I experience. Yeah, just be open and walk around every day, just be open. Yeah, yeah. just be me. Yeah. You know, I have, I've spent my whole life learning how to put on a mask, mm-hmm. mask my symptoms, move through the world in a way that makes sure that everyone else is comfortable, mm-hmm. even if it's at my own expense. Yeah. There are very few people that I can talk to openly and honestly about these experiences mm-hmm. and trust that they will respect me and understand where I'm yeah. coming from, not take it personally, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's a hard way to live, you know. Um, so, I mean, the fact that anyone is listening mm-hmm. to this in an effort to learn more about it, um, to destigmatize it, mm-hmm to move to a place of better understanding is awesome. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a big part of me that just did not want this to be a liability. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, schizophrenia was used often as a political weapon mm. against particularly black men in the United States, um, dissident, dissident people who were uh, moving against the- Dissidents? Dissidents, thank you, <laughs> of the... Uh, I am one, I can say the word. <laughs> of the Soviet Union, right? So they would they would call it sluggish schizophrenia, mm-hmm. right? Or, um, yeah, they would just... Anyone that was a problem yeah. would get that label, yeah. right? So it discredited you automatically. It made anything you say invalid. Any ideas that you had aren't worth it. You know, like all of those things yeah. can be... Weapons. So Weaponized. calling somebody a communist in the States in the year, first 50 years of the 20th century, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Same idea. Mm. Obviously, this has staying power, though. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. And and so I don't expect to walk out of here, you know, and, and get a whole bunch of messages from people saying, oh, I'm so glad you opened up and mm-hmm. shared all of this. Because there's, there's going to be people who are just listening to five minutes and they're like, nope, done. Yeah. And they still don't want to hear it. Yeah. Um, and that's okay too. Yep, it is. Yeah. It is. I mean, I just wanted to get to a place where I could share this story, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it can help someone else. Right on. Maybe it can help someone identify symptoms in themselves. Mm-hmm. And I guess I should talk about like, what should you do sure. if, if you're experiencing symptoms? Let's do it. Do that. And then we'll close out after that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there are a, a few resources that I would recommend mm-hmm. for anyone um, who's experiencing symptoms or has a loved one who has been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, the Schizophrenia Association of Canada or your province here mm-hmm. in Alberta, they are available for membership. They have support groups. They have groups for families to learn how to cope with the um, difficulties that their family member is experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's mental health clubhouses. So there's once you contact them, they'll be able to connect you to networks yeah. where uh, you get peer support, mm-hmm. you know, and, and again, similar with addiction, peer support is great because some people, they might hear your story. Yeah. They're never going to know what it's like to yeah. move through the world with an illness like this, yeah. you know, and so it's great to be able to connect some, mm-hmm. for some people. Yeah. It's great to be able to connect with them and hear mm-hmm. their experiences as well. Um, Go to the hospital. Yeah. Call the distress center. Okay. Um, 
if you have a history of this in your family, mm -hmm. let your children know, let your nieces and nephews know. Mm -hmm. um, it is genetically traceable, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we had to look at my history in order to identify those. Yeah. So it's important to be able to keep track of those things and be yeah. open and honest with family as best you can. I think that's, yeah, that's a great way to end it, man. Just be open and honest as much mm -hmm. as you can, right? And then chances are, like, you'll, you might not get the help you, you need right away, but you might get some help you, you, bits of pieces that you need to lead you to what you actually need, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of like, if we go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't know, we go to another doctor. Yeah. And if that doctor gives, tells us one thing, and he, but the doctor says maybe check with another doctor, check with another doctor. Mm -hmm. Like, I know it's easier said than done. Like, I get that. We, we can't just walk into doctor's offices right <laughs> now and, and ask for stuff, really. But mm -hmm. um, in general, just reach out and, and help and ask for help. Sort of. Yeah. So. And, and know that um, this diagnosis does not mean you're broken, mm -hmm. you're defective, you're hopeless. Those are the narratives of the past. Yeah. You know, this, this mental health disability does not end when you get the diagnosis, yeah. right? You have to learn to live with it. You have to learn to mm -hmm. take your medication, to take counseling and things like that. Mm -hmm. But people can live rich, full lives, mm -hmm. be meaningful members of society in a multitude of ways, mm -hmm. can help other people, can support the community. Which is all the things that you do. Thank you. You're welcome. And, um, and, and still, you know, maintain good health. Mm -hmm. So thank you for listening. You're welcome. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us. Mm -hmm. You take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.